This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Tell me, Graham, why did you really come here? What are you asking for, Graham? My confession? Just the truth. Now we're straying into forbidden territory. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app so you don't miss out on future episodes. Ben Brown is the writer of A Splinter of Ice, a play that portrays the meeting of one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century, Graham Greene, and his old MI6 boss, Kim Philby, one of Britain's most notorious spies and traitor. Graham Greene never divulged any details of the meeting, and Ben's play imagines what might have been. We discuss the play, as well as how Philby and Greene's lives were intertwined. The play is set in Moscow in 1987, and it's a story of two men catching up on old times, but with a new world order breaking around them, how much did the writer of The Third Man know about Philby's secret life as a spy? And did Philby betray his friend, as well as his country? Cold War Conversations listeners can watch the play for only £12, discounted from £20. Just go to our episode notes at coldwarconversations.com slash episode 186. If you've listened so far, I know that you are enjoying the podcast, so I'm asking for one-off or monthly donations to support my work and enable me to continue producing the podcast. If you become a monthly supporter, you will get the sought-after Cold War Conversations coaster as a thank you and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com donate. If a financial contribution is not your cup of tea, then you can still help us by leaving written reviews wherever you listen to us, as well as sharing us on social media. It really helps us get new guests on the show. So, back to today's episode. I'm delighted to welcome Ben Brown to our Cold War conversation. I'm really pleased to have you on the show. I mean, Kim Philby is a very enigmatic character in the Cold War, and I very much enjoyed A Splinter of Ice. I I felt it did give some real insight into... Philby and his motives and and obviously also the the relationship with with Graham Greene. Now, what what drew you to this story in the first place? Well, um it actually came about because I um I was interested in Graham Greene. Um and I uh funny enough actually it was in a book by David Lodge called Lives in Writing it was a reference to Graham Greene. And I think it was a reference to him knowing Kim Philby. So I followed this up by reading the, the memoir of, of Graham Greene's partner for the last 30 years of his life, 
Yvonne Cloetta. And in that memoir, I found a whole chapter about Green's relationship with Philby, which um, as I had not heard of before. And uh, I've just since discovered that very few people have heard of. People know about Graham Green and they know about Kim Philby, but they don't tend to know, uh, most people, that, that, uh, you know, that Graham Green had worked for, for Philby, uh, under Philby, in MI6 during the war. And uh, that also, uh, yes, that he defended him when he defected and then actually gone to see him. And uh, in, in, in Moscow in 1987, sort of the only person to do so, really, from Britain. And, and, then, and that was really, uh, you know, my way into the, to the, to the play. But Green was quite cagey about what was said in that meeting. That's right, yes. He, in fact, I recently discovered that he, he kept a diary on this uh, 1987 uh, trip to Moscow, and he didn't even put in the, his own personal diary that he was going for dinner with Kim Philby. But uh, it is absolutely documented. I mean, there were you know, postcards and things, from letters between them. Also, uh, Rufina Philby, uh, Philby's fourth wife, who was also at this dinner, uh, uh, she uh, later, in the, I think in the late 90s, she wrote a, a memoir and also referred to this trip. Uh, so um, uh, it, it absolutely happened. But yes, Green was very tight-lipped about it. He did say later in the year to a journalist, that he, he all he would say about it is that we can we, we drank we drank and conversed about the past was <laughs> all he would say. So there was quite a lot of room, yes, for um, my imagination to try and uh, yeah put my sort of best guess of what might have happened. It it is fascinating because I, I'm familiar with the Philby story. I was aware of of Green's relationship with him because I knew that he wrote the foreword to. Philby's uh, 1968 memoir, My Silent War. So I, I, I was aware of that, but, the, but this meeting is a, is a really interesting subject because when it occurs is uh, Glasnost has started, Gorbachev has been in power, I think, for two years at, at this point, and you know, things are changing in the Soviet Union. Yes, absolutely. I mean, um, it, as you as you say, it, it was it was the it was actually the kind of honeymoon period of those Glasnost, Perestroika, Gorbachev reforms before you know it all it all went wrong for Gorbachev. It was yes, this sort of time of optimism in terms of the thawing of the Cold War. In fact, Green's the real sort of catalyst for the meeting in on February fifteenth, nineteen eighty seven, was that Gorbachev had invited Green to this peace conference that he'd organized in which lots of Hollywood celebrities as well and other and famous writers all descended on Moscow um, for this peace conference for a sort of nuclear free world and the survival of humanity. It was a sort of rather grand title. And so Green um, went to that. And then it was in the evening that he thought he'd look up his old friend, <laughs> Jim Philby. Um, uh, in fact, uh, were in reality, actually, there were about four. I think Green went four times to Moscow in this period. He went actually in '86 and '87 and '88, uh, and, and I think it was in '88 that Philby died. But you know, so I for the for the most interesting one to me was this one when they had this real chance to be alone together there uh, uh, at this meal when uh, Philby's wife was also there, but was sort of 
left them to it for most of the evening. Um, and so that's why I've sort of focused on that one for the, for the play. And how much did you know about Philby? Well, I was, I was obviously, I was aware of Philby. I mean, apart from anything else, there'd been lots of plays, of course, written about the Cambridge spies, TV dramas and so forth. But I, so I rather thought the subject had been, I assumed the subject had been kind of done to death. You know, Alan, Alan Bennett, of course, wrote plays about Guy Burgess and, and Anthony Blunt and, Simon Gray wrote a play about Blake and there are um, other plays as well. But um, so uh, I, I was aware of it, but um, it was really this Philby himself had never been put on stage. And I do find him the most interesting. And he, I think he was really the most important. Uh, he got the sort of highest up in MI6. You know, he was head of counter Russian intelligence and he was our man in Washington. And very close with the CIA, so he really and then people and, they, and it was widely it's widely accepted he probably would have become C, you know, head of MI6 had uh, he not been exposed. So I was very interested in that, and also yes, this angle with this relationship with Graham Greene, um, who was someone who's you know one of, you know one of the great novelists of the 20th century and the author, of course, of the classic film The Third Man. Uh, so, I, I, you know, that was just too enticing to put, and he's never been put on stage, Graham Green. So that, that sort of, um, duologue, uh, two-hander between them, uh, was particularly tempting for me. And, and one of, I mean, a key part of the play is the film of The Third Man, because, of course, it was a great irony. The film came out in 1949, and in 1951 was when Burgess and MacLean defected. And, of course, it was all over the press in Britain and America, particularly the hunt for the third man, who was the third man in, the, in this aspiring. And so it was, uh, which, of course, turned out to be Philby. But Green, of course, could have, couldn't have known this when he wrote The Third Man. But it's a great irony and uh, <laughs> that, 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 that he became the third man after you know, Green had made that phrase so famous in his film. Um, and, in fact, Philby was convinced that the film was a kind of warning, a sort of secret warning to him, and that Green was sort of knew what he was up to <laughs> in his portrayal of Harry Lyme, which uh, Orson Welles, of course. And Philby also had a link with Vienna, although uh, a decade before, didn't he? Yes, that's right. Because so Philby, um, he, he, he became a communist at Cambridge as you know, he was at Trinity College, as Burgess was, as Blunt was, and uh, in the early 30s. And then in 33, I think it was, yeah, straight after his finals, he went to Vienna to fight against the fascist regime of uh, Dolphus. Um, and so the sort of same time as just when the Nazis had come to power uh, in Berlin. And so, yes, he... He, he, he went to Vienna and then, you know, in fact, he used to use the sewers, which became so famous in the film of The Third Man, that he and his, his girlfriend at the time, who he later married, uh, his, became his first wife, would sort of help smuggle people against the regime uh, you know, out of Vienna through those sewers. And uh, that is another thing that fed into, and he told Green about this, he says, when they were, you know, lunching together in the early 40s, when they were, Green had come back from uh, from Africa from Sierra Leone, and they were working for MI6, which was at that time had moved out to St Albans. 
And uh, yes, you know, he, he was, this all fed into his fixation that the third man had been based on, on him and had been sort of informed by his experience. I interviewed somebody a while back, and I'm just trying to recall their name, but they had met Litzy Friedman, Philby's first wife, um, and I think this was in the 1980s when she was living in East Germany, and he he did ask her about Philby, and I think all she, all she would say is that he was a very nice man. Really? That's, uh, that's very interesting. Well, yes, his third wife, Eleanor, uh, his American wife, who he sort of um, left without warning in Beirut when he defected in 1963. She also, though, continued to, 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 to speak well of him, as she did in her, her memoir, The Spy I Loved. <laughs> so um, his, uh, his relationship with his second wife, who uh, didn't, his English wife, Eileen, didn't uh, sort of end so happily. Um, but she then died uh, shortly after he went, sort of essentially left her and his five children and went when he went to Beirut in the mid to late 50s. I guess if you're in that game of espionage, you've got to have some charm. Well, everybody, everybody sort of says this about Philby, that he was enormously charming. Um, you know, uh, Green certainly says this, you know, and uh, a sense, he had a great sense of humour. And he, he was sort of, um, I mean, yes, he was very witty, and he sort of he stuck up for people within MI6. So Green, I've forgotten what the mistake was, but he, he'd got something wrong and could have been in a bit of trouble, but Philby, his boss, sort of covered for him. And this created a sort of loyalty and affection amongst all those uh, below him. And, and he was thought by those above as well. They were thought enormously highly of him. He was enormously intelligent and efficient and hardworking, uh, as well as this personal charm that he clearly possessed. and. You know, um, and the women in his life as well uh, felt so drawn to, including, of course, notoriously Melinda McLean, uh, Donald McLean's wife, um, after he'd defected to Russia. And when uh, I say when Eleanor eventually joined him from Beirut, she discovered this relation, this affair, and, and, and sort of promptly sort of left, saying she'd only come back when that ended. But then uh, she, she shortly died of cancer. Um, so uh, that was the, the sorry end to that. In the play, they're almost parrying uh, the the Green and Philby character, particularly at the at, at the start of it, because they haven't seen each other for quite some time. Thirty five years. Yeah, and and obviously Philby's a little bit wary. He's there. And, uh, you know, that there's this uncertainty. And then as the play moves on, they sort of warm or, or Philby warms to um, Green because the, the initial thing is you can't ask me any questions. And... Yes. Well, that is actually, he, he, as you say, I mean, he did, it, it, you know, this is recorded, um, I think, by Rufina Philby in her memoir that, you know, that the, pretty much the first thing Philby said to Green when he had got there after 35 years of not seeing each other and not seeing each other since he, uh, Philby had defected and his secret life, as it were, had come to light. The first thing he says, yes, please just don't ask me any questions. And that, so that is actually, he, he did actually say that. Um, 
So, you know, uh, which obviously to a very curious novelist like Green, who's so fascinated by uh, the spy world and the Britain, you know, films and novels about it, was, uh, was rather frustrating. So, but uh, in my play, at least, he eventually overcomes this shyness uh, and uh, reticence uh, on, on Philby's part by sort of winning his confidence that, uh, you know, he's really just just interested and wants to understand, you know, this Philby uh, in his life. And I think that works really well because you get a really good description of his life in the play because there's obviously the conversation the conversation moves on to uh Litzy and and Philby's work in Vienna but also and I think that this isn't particularly well known either is his involvement in the Spanish Civil War when he's having to act as a as a right-wing journalist because he's already been recruited by uh the Soviet intelligence at this point and he gets awarded a medal by General Franco. Yes. So, as you say, he was covering for the Times, in fact, the Spanish Civil War, when um, a Republican shell blew up next to the car he was in. And, and this is you know, extraordinarily, he, he, he became known as Lucky Kim. He was the only survivor. The other three journalists were all killed. Um, so, so, yes, Franco gave him a medal for that. And but all of this, of course, was very useful for his cover as a, a sort of you know establishment right-leaning um, you know a, a journalist and, and 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 yeah sort of patriotic Brit. Yeah, yeah, that gave gave him that that protection because he's he's recruited by MI6. Yes, the crucial point then in nineteen forty forty one. Um, I th- it was getting into finally getting into the security services. He, I'm not sure he may have joined MI5 first, but anyway, this of course would have always been the aim and always been his kind of orders, if you like, since he'd been recruited back in '33 um, on you know on a park bench in Regent's Park um, so by his Russian handler. So, so yes, that was the key turning point in which. Yeah, he's obviously stopped being a journalist at that point, uh, and became yeah um, a, a member of the security services and a sort of rapidly rising one. But I think the the interesting thing is is about the vetting that they had for the security services during this period, because if it had been done reasonably thoroughly, they would have discovered his communist credentials and i think some people were aware that he had well i think the view was that he'd flirted with communism as a sort of youthful aberration but he was now um you know firmly part of the establishment absolutely i mean i suppose you have to it seems incredibly naive obviously because as you say i mean the they did know the deputy head uh, the deputy chief of uh because uh, MI6 knew, you know, they knew about his communist, they knew he'd been a communist at Cambridge. But they did, t- so many people had though. So they tended to see it as a sort of, yes, a sort of going through the measles thing that so many people had done, a youthful aberration, you know, as his father put it. And um, yeah, because absolutely there was this occasion when uh, this deputy chief took his father 
and Philby out to lunch at his club or invited them to lunch. And then when Philby was in the loo, you know, the, the, the chief asked his old friend, Philby's father, who was. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War uh, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast, and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. A famous Arabist, you know, about, about this, uh, his communism, Philby's communism at Cambridge. And he says, yes, it's just a youth collaboration. And, and the chief went back, the vice chief, sorry, went back to the head of MI6 uh, and said, yeah, you know, Philby's clean, you know, I know his people. So sort of, you know, yes, he had that little childish thing. But uh, he's, you know, now, absolutely, you know, he's rock solid now. And, of course, by this time, we are after, of course, the, 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 the Nazi-Soviet pact, which, which did cause many people to abandon their communism because, you know, uh, they were so appalled that Stalin should do a deal with Hitler, you know, because fascism being the great enemy. But it's, it was plausible, therefore, it seemed to them that Philby would long, long since have renounced his communism. There, there is a conversation in the play about the uh, the, the Nazi Soviet pact and exactly. how yeah. how Philby felt felt about that. Mm. Um, which, which again, it, it the you know the the play I, I you know I I did so enjoy because the the casting was great and the conversation you know didn't feel contrived in any way. It felt like a natural conversation between two friends and at some points you sort of almost forgot that that it was supposed to be Kim Philby and 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 Graham Greene there was a you know a, a genuine friendliness and affection came across well I mean um, thank you for that but they uh, there really was this genuine affection between them um this was the sort of you know the key of, to their relationship that at this time in the early 40s working together, Green under Philby, uh, in St Albans, and, um, you know, in this office there in King Harry Lane, and, 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 and uh, going to this, you know, King Harry pub for drinks and Sunday lunch and all of this. And then and that carried on, actually, when the MI6 moved back to, to London a bit later in the war. So this sort of time, you know, in, those, in, that, in that wartime period, they really forged a very close friendship, and they just got on. You know, they were both incredibly razor sharp uh, men uh, with, with, and they shared a sense of humour. Of course, they shared a, a sort of background, you know, public school in Oxbridge. Um, you know, so they, they had a lot in common and they, they just really got on. <laughs> and so that sort of once you have that or people have that sometimes in their youth, even if there's been a big gap, they can pick up the threads again, you know, uh, based very much on the humour and the shared interests as well. Of course, I mean, Graham Greene, you know, was, was, was leftish as well. 
Although, and he had in fact been, unlike Philby, ironically, he had in fact been a member of the Communist Party at Oxford, uh, but only for four weeks, he says, and just as a sort of joke to try and get a free trip. But, uh, but, but also, I mean, Graham Greene, he really had put himself out for Philby. Um, this book came out, I think it was in 67, 68, um, called The Spy Who Betrayed a Generation by some Sunday Times journalists with a, a really vicious introduction from John le Carré when he described Philby as having no woman, no home, no faith and being spiteful, vain and murderous. And so it was really strong stuff and saying that Philby should have, been, they should have instead of allowing him to escape, whether, whether they intentionally did or not, uh, and, to, and when he defected in, in, in 63, that they should have liquidated him in Beirut, MI6 should have done. So, you know, it, 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 it was really going it. And, and Green then, um, I think, wrote some article in The Observer defending uh, Philby, who he saw as a, a, a latter-day Elizabethan martyr, you know, so that he, you know, this was, as far as he was concerned, he sincerely held belief that communism would be better for Britain. And therefore, even if you disagreed with it, he, in Green's case, he respected it. So, you know, and so he, and he had taken a huge amount of flack for this Green. People say it cost him the Nobel Prize, it cost him a knighthood, all these things. And, uh, you know, he really was a lone voice of defence. So he'd really stuck his neck out for Philby. So I think Philby was very grateful for that, you know, that Green had been his defender or, as others would say, apologist. So, you know, there were, there were reasons uh, for them to, for this affection and uh, this sort of friendship to have survived. Um, and, that, and as you say, our casting is wonderful because, we, I mean, they are two of the great stage actors. We have Oliver Ford Davis and Stephen Boxer, uh, both, you know, numerous leads for the RSC and the National and so forth. And they are old friends themselves, though. And they've, you know, 10 years ago, they did a David Edgar play written on the heart together. And, uh, and they lived uh, 20 years ago. I mean, they're, they're old friends. So I think that that really helps that, 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 that in, the, in their playing that they can in their portrayal of this uh, other great old friendship. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that is questioned within the plays is why Green left MI6. And, in fact, Philby asks this question in the play, doesn't he? Yes, he does. And so, yes, so what happened, yes, in the towards the end of the war, um, Philby, having already pulled off the initial coup of getting into the security services, then pulled off the coup of the Cold War was just beginning and of the counter-Russian intelligence sort of section was created. And uh, it was assumed, I think, that Philby's boss, Felix Calgill, in this other section, would head up this new section. But Philby managed to get himself this job of being head of this new counter-Russian uh, a section, as Green said, you know, or says in the play, so, you know, he was given responsibility for catching himself. So, um, but at, uh, but at the time, this Green sort of seeing this sort of what he thought was naked, um, you know, um, ambition uh, to sort of climb to the top of the pole, rather put Green off Philby, uh, and this is what he says anyway. And so when Philby then offered Green a job in this section. He turned it down. Um, 
and um but it uh, you know and so this that's that's the reason that, that that green did in fact does in fact give i think in the forward to my silent war philby's memoir for why he uh, he left mi6 others have suggested that in fact that he was also you know i think it was a, a film contract and he wanted to kind of pursue his writing more now the war was ending full time so there may have been something of that as well but he uh he certainly at that point um you know was rather put off philby but when the but then in 63 when he discovered that in fact philby had been ordered by his communist masters to get as high as he possibly could in mi6 and certainly you know heading up the russian counterintelligence section was ideal from their point of view then uh, for green that made philby more sympathetic because he felt he was at least you know he was working for a cause and an ideal rather than his own selfish motives did you read any of their correspondence to sort of like get a feel as to well how they spoke in the in the written form anyway yes no i i did um one of the first things I did was I sent off there uh, to get photocopies of all of the kind of cards and letters between them. There aren't a great a great number actually, but uh, I think they're in um, in a university in Georgia in America. So I got these photocopies, and that was that was helpful. But also, of course, Green's forward to my silent war, my silent war itself, uh, Philby's uh, uh, memoir, and uh, and Rufina's book as well. Uh, my my I think it's called the private life of Kim Philby, which is uh, very useful. And I should also mention that there's um, uh, a very good documentary called uh, "A Spy Who Went Into the Cold." I think it is a BBC documentary by George Carey, who also made fine documentaries about George Blake uh, and and uh, and Guy Burgess. But that was very useful. And, and in the spy who went into the cold. He actually goes into the flat in Moscow, KGB flat, where they lived and where the players sat, and interviews uh, Rufa, as she was known, uh, in that flat. And she sort of shows him around. So, of course, that was terrifically helpful for, for me writing play, a play set there. Um, uh, so, yes, that was, that was uh, some of the research. But, of course, there are many biographies and other ones that I, that I read. And it's, is Rufina still alive? She is actually. She is still alive. She is, um, I think she's in, a, she in her late 80s or something now. Um, yes. So we did actually um, make contact, but she, she, even though she spoke all the time to Philby in English, she seems to have forgotten all her English now. <laughs> he, he, you know, he's been dead for... Uh, over 30 years isn't it so and uh but we just got the sense as well that she'd rather rather be left alone so we decided not to trouble her and i think she'd put pretty much everything she could remember she was certainly you know very fond of graham green on these few occasions that she met him and uh she put everything into this book and this interview so we decided with 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 uh with let sleeping dogs lie um, but of course, you know, um, yeah, I don't know if she'd ever, she'll ever see the play, but I hope she, I, th- I think it's probably, I think she'd think it was a more sympathetic portrayal of, of, uh, of, uh, her late, her late husband than certainly one that someone like Le Carre would give. 
Yeah, well, yeah, you touch on Le Carre, don't you, in the uh, in in the dialogue as well, where there's yeah. uh, no love lost there. No, I mean, and actually, and this this isn't in the play, but Green and uh, Le Carre fell out a bit over Philby as well. I mean, it's interesting. The Carry aspect is interesting because Green and Philby were two of the most important figures in his life. He, when he, when he, and I know when he gave that interview a few years ago, it was re-shown recently with Mark Lawson, he spoke about both of them. Um, he admired Green enormously as a, as a writer, um, obviously. And, uh, he, and, 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 and Philby, um, he... Who I think you know he famously based the 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 traitor in um, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy on. Uh, so you know, and he also in fact blamed Philby for blowing his own cover and causing him to leave MI6 um, in '63. So when when uh, Le Carre had been uh, based in Bonn. In the, in the embassy in Bonn, so so yes, yeah, so they, they you know they uh, it was a personal reason as well. It was very understandable loathing of Philby. I, d- I know that um, Kim Philby's granddaughter Charlotte is uh, a successful author. Um, yes, and, so I gather, yeah. and she's written a book about her grandfather and uh, Edith Tudor Hart. Uh, which I'm very much looking forward to because, you know, I, d- I just do find this whole well, the the Cambridge Five I th- are fascinating anyway, and you've got a great cast of characters there. I mean, uh, Guy Burgess is uh, you could write volumes about <laughs> uh, about him, and indeed, I've interviewed Andrew Lowney, um, who who uh, wrote the book on uh, relatively recently on 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 Burgess, and that was a um, a fascinating chat but i th- i think it's difficult for people to think back and you know at the time when philby was recruited in the 1930s there was a polarization or there appeared to be a polarization in politics between fascism and right wing politics and and communism and it's easy for people to be seduced by communism and think that that was the way to a, a far better world and with with Philby it seems as though he he despite uh you know as we've mentioned the the Stalin Hitler Hitler pact Hungary in 1956 Czechoslovakia in 1968 he still was a true believer in communism yes um, he certainly said he was, and you know, um, appears to have been. He was a great fan of Gorbachev, actually. So, I think he was attracted to what was sort of called in uh, sometimes, wasn't it, the sort of communism with a human face. Uh, so, he, you know, he wasn't. He wanted more openness. You know, he certainly was not a fan of the Brezhnev era, you know, the invasion of Afghanistan, and so forth. So. Uh, I mean, people have pointed out, though, that once you make a decision like that, and once you end up in Russia, and you're really a sort of state beneficiary, you know, you know, there are other incentives, you know, not to give up the creed as well, aren't you? You're sort of tied to it, really, to that kind of commitment. 
But I think, I mean, that, you know, that, that might be all unconscious stuff. Certainly, he seems to have held fast to the faith consciously, or certainly that's what he told Green, and Green believed that. Um, Le Carre, actually, in this introduction to the spy who portrayed a generation in 1968, said he, he didn't believe in the political motive of Kim Philby. He just thought he was sort of, you know, addicted to deceit and so forth. So he, he clearly, he didn't accept that, the, 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 the sincerity of Philby's beliefs, but Green definitely did, which was crucial uh, to their friendship. And as you say, though, about that, that time in the early 30s, um, you know, the rise of fascism in Germany, um, and of course, already in Italy and in, 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 in Spain, and the, uh, the, you know, the hunger marches that, Perhaps some of them even passed through Cambridge, um, you know, after the, with, the, with, the, with the Depression. Um, so, you know, the politics sort of seemed to be failing. And, uh, uh, um, and so, so many people, intelligent thinking people, did think that the only way to, to fight fascism was with, with, with communism. Obviously, people like Keynes were seeking a sort of third way, um, sort of social democratic kind of politics. But, but many did you know, were drawn uh, at that time um, in the mainstream, in the, in the West, and in, certainly in, in, in Britain and particularly Cambridge. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I mean, once he's in the Soviet Union, he's got nowhere else to go, so he has to toe the line there if he's going to live comfortably. And I don't know whether – have you seen the talk that he does for the Stasi – Yes, I have. This one that was only discovered a few years ago, wasn't it? That Yeah, that's incredible because he's obviously thinks that this is never going to be shown outside of the, the Stasi uh, or, the, or the, you know, the Eastern Bloc espionage circuit. And so it's the real him. Yes, it is absolutely fascinating. Um, as you say, that uh, a few years ago, I know I remember seeing Gordon Carrera introducing it didn't he this very short film of him speaking to the Stasi. i think he was sort of i think it was in the about in the very early 80s wasn't it something like that yeah and just you know because he'd sort of gone over to lecture or given some tips <laughs> and uh uh but that's the yeah but to see that the other famous film of him of course is when he's denying being the third man really in 1955 i think it was in his mother's flat, yeah, you know, in uh, in in Kensington or somewhere. Um, so uh, and so, but but then you know we don't have any. But it's just only recently, yes, this much later film. Where, so he would have um, been in his late sixties. Yeah. Anyway, um, so, uh, with this film, so to sort of hear his voice, his very deep, rich voice that he had then. Um, but still, you know, there's that sense of humour and that charm that comes across, if you remember, from that that little clip. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's well worth I'll, – I'll add it. I think it's on YouTube, so I'll add it to the episode notes um, alongside links as to how people can see the play as well. Um, I mean, what, one of the things I liked about the, the green character is that he asks the questions that I'd probably want to ask Philby because obviously you're having to imagine what those responses would be from his memoirs, which would obviously be quite 
well, not quite, but obviously very favourable to what what he did and uh, and sanctioned by uh, the KGB. But but things like you know how how did he feel about betraying the men that he trained to go into Soviet Armenia and Albania? Yes, well, obviously you know when Lacare, for example, called him murderous, it was those things that he had in mind. I mean, Green, none of Green's friends could understand why he stuck up for Philby, why he stayed friends with him. You know, no one could. I mean, it, it, it back, even in actually in 87, at the time of this trip, um, A.N. Wilson wrote an article in the Mail uh, in which he said that to, to go on holiday, as he put it, with Kim Philby, uh, was like going on holiday with Goebbels during the Second World War. So, you know, this was the level of feeling against Green for, for continuing to associate in any way with Philby. And um, uh, as you've just referred to, of this, this the, the, the role Kim Philby played in the deaths of people who have estimated, you know, hundreds of agents, in, you know, many of whom this was these counter-revolutionary operations taking place in you know, Albania, Ukraine, Georgia, Bulgaria, places like that. And when Kil- and Philby at this time it was based in Istanbul, and uh, he was our man in Istanbul, and would train these people, who he would then, yeah, you know, sort of send uh, into these countries to try and start up the counter-communist revolution. And uh, but obviously tipping off the Russians, who would in turn, you know, tip off the local authorities, and they would be killed. So you know that's. That's quite an indictment, isn't it? That's yeah. That's quite something for for a, a friend to come to terms with. And you know, I think Green that is, uh, even at Green's, you know, the end of his life, his biographer Norman Sherry. Uh, in fact, the very last thing as Green was dying in Switzerland in the early nineties, you know, and 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 Sherry would sort of still be on at him about, you know, but how can you stay? Yeah, but what about Philby? What are your last words on Philby? How can you, you know, justify, excuse, even explain this behaviour? And uh, he he notes as well that this was the apparently Ren Green really lost his rag over the, over this. This is obviously just before he was dying, but you know he he it was the one thing that really upset him, and he just he refused to denounce Philby and got very angry because but it, so it was a clearly it was a sort of soft spot um, for him, and a, you know. Um, and he struggled with it. I think, you know, if your friends do things, you know, you really disapprove of violently, you know, that is a kind of dilemma for you, isn't it, as a person, how you handle when terrible things come out about friends. And, you know, and so that is an important aspect of, of the play that, that Green, uh, he, he challenges about this. And um, I don't know whether he ever did this in real life, Um but uh, you know, it's uh, it's 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 he does in the play. Yeah, it's an interesting tale of how you navigate friendship like that when, yeah, your your friend does things that you disagree with, and and also if you've not seen them for a while as well, um, and that that's a, you know, whether you know the story of of these two or not, it's a, it's a really interesting. Um, relationship that you see being being played out and while i was doing research for this i discovered that green had helped fidel castro in 1957 yes he did and he i mean he, philby went to cuba 
one of the places you know that he was able to go to having defected. Um, and he was disappointed that he never did meet Castro. Phil um, Green, as you say, did meet Castro more than one occasion, I think. Um, I think got on quite well with him. I, th- I think what what he did is he supplied some warm clothes for the guerrilla fighters um, in 1957, so before he'd overthrown Batista. Um, so, you know, it wasn't a major thing, but obviously there was that relationship with with Castro and that sympathy for uh, the, the Castro revolution. Well, yeah, I mean, Green was very, he was very um, anti-fascist authoritarian regimes. He was very anti-American intervention, famously, of course, in his novel, The Quiet American, which so brilliantly anticipates. Uh, he wrote it in the mid-50s, and it brilliantly anticipates the, you know, the, the dangers of American intervention in Vietnam. So, and, and he spent many, you know, in his in his, in his sort of later years, uh, in you know, in Central and South America, um, you know, he was very much pro uh, against Noriega uh, in uh, Nicaragua and in favour of the Sandinistas. So, you know, he uh, he was very anti-fascist. He was anti-American intervention. He was quite anti. It's quite modern in being very sort of anti-empire and. Uh, anti, yeah, colonialism and, and and so forth. So he indeed he even famously said that uh, he would, you know, if given the choice, he'd rather live in the, live in the Soviet Union than in America. I think he was being slightly provocative then, in that he was just trying to <laughs> rile America. But he seemed to be perfectly happy living in the south of France. But yeah. um, you know, as a, a bit of a, a bit of a tax exile, in fact, yeah, from Britain. But, um, but he probably he's he was probably thinking, oh, I know where there's a sofa I can sleep on in Moscow. If <laughs> well, anyway, they had, certainly they had a lot in common with what they opposed, even if even though Green could never, despite this youthful prank of joining the Communist Party at Oxford for four weeks, even, you know, he, he, he never became a communist, really. Um, he, uh, but they had a lot in common, really. I think Green called them, we know we were both men of the left and anti-fascist as well. I'm, I'm interested to know how the actors sort of prepared for this. Did you give them books that you wanted them to read to to understand, or, or do they are they left to prepare themselves and and read around the the subject matter? Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, Oliver Ford Davis, who I've worked with twice before, twenty years ago or so, we did a play about Philip Larkin, and ten years ago he played Balfour. In a play I wrote about the Balfour Declaration, uh, and he's a, and he was actually uh, he, and he and he's a trained historian. He did his he, he read history uh, at Oxford, and he I think he did a doctorate, or he's and and then he taught history at Edinburgh University as well. And it was only in his late twenties that he took the plunge and gave up being an academic, and you know decided to try his luck as an actor uh, with great success. So. Um, so, you know, this, I certainly don't need to give him any guidance in how to, to do the historical research. You know, um, he very much, uh, you know, got into all that and, and, and read a huge amount, uh, as he, as he likes to do. And, uh, of course, these documentaries that, that were very useful as well. Um, there's a, there was also a, a, a late 60s documentary. Uh, Graham Greene always refused to appear on film. Um, 
In fact, there's rather, uh, there's rather just just in the, a few days ago, I read how Melvin Bragg always, you know, says the one person he could never get to do the South Bank show was Graham Greene. And then when he met Graham Greene, he said, uh, Graham Greene said, well, you see, the problem is that uh, I like to buy cheap secondhand books. And if I go on your show, I'll be recognized and then they'll raise the price. So that was his witty <laughs> way of getting out of being on the South Bank show. But That's so anyway, it's a great answer. But he did do a monitor in the late 60s, which we, through various contacts of the director, we managed to get hold of um, to watch that when the Graham Greens took it. You never see him, but he takes a train ride and talks about his life. I think it goes on the Orient Express. That's a bit like Stamble Train, one of his earlier books. Um, so, uh, so yes, so that, there was that research. Stephen Boxer um, yeah, also did lots of, you know, reading. That, uh, there are these many, many biographies of uh, uh, of Philby, I also, I also particularly would like to mention, yeah, the Hugh Trevor Roper in the late six, also in '68, I think, wrote the Philby affair because he had known him, the famous historian Hugh Trevor Roper, who became Lord mm-hmm. Dacre, and then he wrote a, a very punchy <laughs> uh, a book uh, about uh, Philby, who he'd been a friend with and worked with, yeah, at MI6, and uh, that's very worth reading. But obviously, more recently, Ben McIntyre has written written a book, and there are lot there are lots of others. Um, so, yes, Stephen also got stuck in there. And we were very fortunate. One thing, actually, is that lockdown, one, the play was delayed two or three times, but it was fortunate that uh, just before the uh, r- r- the end of last year, in fact, uh, a new biography of Green was published by Richard Green, a Canadian, which is very good, actually. It's by far the best Green biography. And uh, that was very useful for us to have time uh, for, for, for Oliver Ford Davis and Alice Stracker and myself to sort of absorb that um, before rehearsals began. So I right. That. Yeah, I reckon. Right. Okay. Well, we'll we'll add that that to this uh, <laughs> yes. ever lengthening episode <laughs> notes because I, I I did find it interesting the the relationship that Philby had with George Blake, the other major MI six defector. Mm. Uh, which sort of fell apart over a incident with his with uh, Philby's son. Yes, no, this is this is true. Um, Blake, who wasn't part of the Cambridge spy ring, uh, the sort of Cambridge Five, you know, with, with Burgess and MacLean, um, both of whom defected, but were dead by the time of the play, and uh, um, uh, Blunt, of course stayed in Britain, and, and Philby and Cancross. So Blake, though, had been um, uh, famously given the longest sentence ever imposed in British law in the, in the early 60s, and, uh, but then escaped. Simon Gray wrote a play about this called Cellmates, that Stephen Fry famously vanished from. <laughs> but uh, and, uh, anyway, though, so, but, but yes, he, uh, you know, being in Russia already, and Burgess has died. Um, McLean, uh, I think McLean was still alive then, but obviously, you know, Philby had rather queered that by, by having an affair with his wife. So he was sort of thrown together with Blake, although he hadn't known him uh, in England. Blake wasn't sort of from the same kind of background as they were. He was, you know, uh, he was Jewish. He was brought up in Egypt. He wasn't sort of part of that kind of posh establishment. Spiring, um, 
but but they did become friends and it was uh or they sort of saw each other and had a lot in common of course um and uh but it was through blake though that philby met his wife because um his, his last russian wife because she was friends with with blake's wife but yes it wasn't long into their relationship that Blake and his wife threw a dinner party at their dacha, uh, sorry, a lunch party, and Philby's son was over trying to make his way as a photographer. And Philby, you know, he asked if he could take some pictures. Philby said yes, uh, and then Blake did as well. But then when John Philby, I think this is Charlotte's dad, um, uh, went back to England, uh, you know, he, of course, sold the pictures, and they were published all over the Western world. And uh, Blake was very angry about that. You know, and that because he, I mean, you can see these pictures online of them having having lunch in 75. And because he hadn't, I mean, he says, you know, even though he allowed the pictures to be taken, he'd never thought that they would be, you know, sold or published. But anyway, so that, so that, yeah, cooled relations between them and they never recovered. Yeah, because I get the impression that sort of Rafina almost saved Philby because he'd, he'd gone to quite a a dark place after the uh, the previous affairs. Yes, he did. In the late sixties, you know, he he did. I think, you know, some of them. I mean, I mean, Burgess wasn't wasn't happy there at all either. There was this, there was a, a real. They weren't fully trusted. I think. I think the, the Russians almost couldn't believe <laughs> that these people were genuine. You know that they were. Mm. Were they were they actually triple agents and so forth? You know, really working for the British because you know. It was such an extraordinarily successful operation, you know, the whole recruiting of these young undergraduates, really, or, you know, uh, in the early 30s, who then became so successful that they could, you know, they, they sort of wondered whether they really were on their side. And so there was a sort of, it wasn't a total trust, even after that, you know, they defected. So, you know, they, basically, they didn't give them much to do, and they wouldn't let Philby publish his book um initially uh and so and yes and you know philby's relationship uh his, well his you know with uh well, he, he, you know, with melinda mclean collapsed she had moved in for a while and his and eleanor had then sort of you know gone back uh, uh, uh to the west and i think she went back to america in fact and she and she died so he was he was he was lonely and dep- depressed and bored and was drinking a lot so it was a very dark time for him in the in the late before he met Rufina, who really did, as you say, she really did save him. Um, you know, uh, and she looked. I mean, she was like, twenty years younger, and uh, she's you know, um, she looked after him. She was hugely sympathetic to him. She was you know, she, you know, it, 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 he, he found her very attractive. You know, um, it was just uh, you know, it was absolutely he he became very dependent on her, and he couldn't, and he never learnt the language either, uh, Russian. So. But he, you know, he was quite, um, but no, in, yes, in later life, they became enormously dependent. And she really kept, she cared for him very much. So, you know. Lucky Kim again. Yeah. Cold War Conversations listeners can watch the play for only £12, discounted from £20. Just go to our episode notes at coldwarconversations.com slash episode 186. Now, you wouldn't be listening to this podcast without the generous support of our patrons. 
However, I want to especially thank our Politburo level members who are contributing a generous 30 US dollars a month to keep us on the air. They are Tony Sowards, Sam Hardwick, Nicholas Butter, Jeffrey Jones, Matthew Comstock, Mark Labance, Frederick Esposito, Darren Hughes, Jim Black, Ryan Vlaming, Stephen Kavalich, and Peter Ryan. Don't forget, if you like one of those Cold War Conversations coasters and help support the show, then head over to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. If you can't wait for the next episode, please visit our Facebook discussion group where listeners just like you continue the Cold War Conversation. Just search for Cold War Conversations in Facebook. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. not enjoying the ads well you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate by becoming a monthly or annual supporter you'll enjoy ad-free listening become a part of our community receive the sought after cold war conversations drinks coaster and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve cold war history just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information